All right. Hi, this is Roland Fisher, lead pastor of Second City Church, and we hope that you're well. Welcome to our online service. We hope you leave today encouraged, full of faith, and ready to take the kingdom of God wherever you may go. We're so glad that you've chosen to join us today. And once again, welcome. What we're doing today is we're continuing our series called Joy to the World, where we're celebrating the advent or rather known as the coming of Jesus Christ into the world to be the savior of all mankind for their sins against the holy and a righteous God. Now, as we do that, we're going to subtitle today's message, The Learned, Joy to the World to the Learned, because we live in the information age and we know that whether you've dedicated your life to academics or you're maybe just a person who's a DIY person over the weekend. We all have access to information 24-7 right now at our fingertips, and most of us consider ourselves in some way to be learned people. But the question is, what do we do with that learning? Does it lead us to Christ, and does it actually provide the joy to the world that he actually intended for us? And so today we're going to be focusing on this statement, that God brings joy when we allow our learning to discover life's purpose in Jesus. We're going to break the message down into three parts. We're going to talk first about following the signs that lead to Jesus. Secondly, we're going to talk about the special revelation that actually leads to Jesus. And then finally, we're going to talk about being at the feet of the King, Jesus, and how to respond to him as he is. So before we do anything else, Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word to us today, and we thank you that you've given us great joy for all mankind through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that you would help us to understand how the learning that you've given us leads us ultimately to your son today for our salvation and our great joy in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's start by talking about following the signs. We're going to pick up with the story of the Magi, which whether you've grown up in the church or not, it's probably a story that you've heard uh, maybe in various ways before. It's the story of the wise men who came from a distance to, when they heard about Jesus, worship him as king over not only their lives, but all the earth. And so we're going to start with this statement that our joy is stirred when we begin to follow the signs in life pointing us to Jesus. And if you have a Bible today, open please with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. It said, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so this is the good news of the advent of Jesus and how people both far and wide were coming to honor him as king and worship him as he was. Now, the first thing we see in Luke's account of the wise men is that the good news of Jesus is actually not just an idea, but it's a recorded event. And Jesus came at a particular to a particular well-documented point in human history. In the days of Herod the Great, the Roman appointed king of Judea who ruled in Israel and Judah from 37 to 4 BC. Now, there are at least two reasons that the invitation to meet Christ would have been joy to these wise men. The first is that it's a calculated certainty that we will all face God one day in death to give an account of our lives. And you may not think about that on an everyday basis, but it's true. We should all heed the words of PhD Stephen Meyer when he said during his interview with Lee Strobel in the book, The Case for a Creator, that if it's true there's a beginning to the universe, as modern cosmologists now agree, then this implies a cause that transcends the universe. If the laws of physics are fine-tuned to permit life, as contemporary physicists are discovering, then perhaps there's a designer who fine-tuned them. If there's information in the cell, as molecular biology shows, then this suggests intelligent design. To get life going in the first place would have required biological information. The implications point beyond the material realm to a prior intelligent cause. And so what we see at the end of the day is that resistance is ultimately futile. We're all going to physically expire one day. And it was joy for these erudite men because of that, because for all their deep learning and achievements in life, it amounts to nothing if ultimately you're damned in your destiny after the grave. Now, it was joy for them, but it was also joy for a man named Solomon. King Solomon of ancient Israel, who was one of the wisest and wealthiest men of any generation, and he said this by the Holy Spirit in Proverbs 11, that riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness, meaning the very righteousness that Jesus Christ would come to bring through his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins to reconcile us to God, he said that righteousness delivers from death. Jesus actually echoed this strongly in his teachings when he posited during his earthly ministry. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come. And when he's talking about this coming, he's not talking about the first advent when he was born in that manger, but instead his second coming, the second advent of Christ, when he's going to restore all things and bring all men into judgment. It says, for the son of man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
And so what we see is that mortality, which we'll, we all have, is a liberating thing when, um, when we are right with our intelligent creator. Yet it is a fearful and daunting reality if you enter eternity without Christ. Now, it's better to meet God now with the invitation of peace, just like the wise men had an invitation of peace from God to come and meet the Christ while they were living. And it's, in, um, it's a better to meet God with that invitation of peace than to face the wrath of his foretold judgment. These all summarize the first reasons why this good news of Jesus coming was actually joy to the wise men. The second reason is, is that meeting the meeting of Christ would finally put the reason for all of the wise men's great learning, achievements, and resources into their proper perspective. God intends our learning to ultimately lead us to Christ. And this is why the wise men deemed it necessary to make such a long, costly, and time-consuming trip to meet the king. As in all our encounters with God, responses of active worship are not only what God is due, but are actually for our benefits in our hearts, both to help us put our place and responsibilities in life before God in proper order. And worship of Jesus puts our world and all that we deem as ours in right order when we actually lay it all at his feet as our king. As with the shepherds, an invitation was given to the wise men. And as the delightful billboard says that you see along the road, wise men and wise women still seek him. The question is, is that will we allow God's invitation to compel us to seek Christ as well? Well, what God did for the wise men is that he used signs to help them find Jesus. And God put his creation to work using the star as a sign for them. Well, this may seem odd to you, but it's no different than what the writers of both the Psalms and Paul the Apostle and Romans wrote. In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So even the stars that he put in the sky are actually proclaiming truths about God. It says, Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice it is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world, meaning that God uses his creation to declare truths about himself and what he wants to do in relationship with us in the world. Paul wrote in Romans 1, 19, that what can be known about God is plain to them, meaning to humanity, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, meaning humanity, are without excuse. Now the wise men followed the signs of God's revelation in the natural world to ultimately lead them both to the predictive and explanatory power of the Bible. And the question that I have for you today is what signs has God been giving you to ultimately lead you to himself and to his son, Jesus Christ? Maybe for some of you, it's what we hear in the natural and see in the natural world. 
For some of you, it might have been recently a near-death experience or a friend or a family member who's been inviting you to consider the things of eternity. What actually comes in life after death in the midst of this pandemic and as so many people have been concerned about what's to come? God is using various signs to get a hold of your heart, your life, and your mind in Him. But He doesn't do it just with signs. He does it with special revelation. And we see that our joy is not just stirred, but it's also confirmed when we embrace a special revelation of God's word leading us to Christ. Now, how did the wise men, if they were from the east and not in Israel, not in the place of Jesus' birth, how did they catch wind of the coming Messiah? Well, scholars tell us that the term wise men originally referred to priests and experts in the mysteries of Babylon and Persia where years before the Israelites had been deported in judgment. If you read any of the Old Testament, you see that that was part of God's disciplining of his people. When they didn't obey his commands, he sent them into exile in foreign lands. And the Israelites carried the special revelation of the law and the prophets of God with them to Babylon, speaking of the soon coming Messiah who would be savior of the world. Now, by this time, meaning the writing of the time of the coming of Jesus and the writing of Luke, by this time, the meaning of the term wise men extended to those who practiced astrology, dream interpretation, those who studied sacred writings, wisdom, and even practiced magic. And it wasn't that God actually approved of these practices. Rather, God, by reaching out to these wise men, was demonstrating his love and missionary heart towards all mankind, meeting people where, right where they were to bring them back to himself through Jesus. And that's good news to you and I today, that no matter where we're starting today, it doesn't matter if you found you find yourself bound by alcoholism or drug addiction. It doesn't matter if you've been the victim or the perpetrator of abuse. God says he'll meet you right where you are, turning you in great learning by special revelation to Jesus, the Christ who can save you today. And what we see is that it's not just good enough that we believe in something. It's not just good enough that we're spiritually minded people. God wants to bring us to Jesus, who is the only means of reconciliation between fallen humanity and God because of what Jesus would ultimately accomplish for us on the cross. He's the only one that can bridge the gap between us being dead in our sins and God who must judge but wants to give us life. And when the wise men arrived in Jerusalem, what they did is they came into contact with God's word and were charged by Herod to diligently search for the child who was to be born king. Yet today, you see that though there are many churches around us and though there are opportunities like these online to hear the word of God, so many of us excuse lack of faith with a herd mentality euphemism to simply justify the sin in which we want to live. Meaning that we can always find reasons for shacking up with somebody. We can always find reasons for continuing to live in unbelief when we want to be king or queen of our own lives and do what we want to do. 
And both Herod and those in Jerusalem, it says in the scripture, were troubled because the advent of Jesus threatened their perception of rule over their own lives. But we don't want to make the same mistake that they did resisting Jesus when he comes, but instead allow our learning to lead us to him. Now, the joy in life that you actually find in Jesus, even if it takes time because you have some questions, it's actually worth the prolonged search that you make, whether as an unbeliever or as somebody who's a Christian, the search that you make to make your confidence in Christ sure. Lee Strobel, who again was the author of the aforementioned The Case for a Creator, also wrote a book called The Case for Faith. And in it, he testifies about his own experience. He said, I started out as an atheist, utterly convinced that God didn't create people, but that people created God in a pathetic effort to explain the unknown and temper their overpowering fear of death. My previous book, The Case for Christ, described my nearly two-year examination of the historical evidence that pointed me toward the verdict that God really exists and that Jesus actually is his unique son. And if you've not read that series, series yet, I commend it to you, whether you're a Christian so that it can affirm your faith or somebody who's simply seeking like the wise men. It gives you answers and both reasons to believe that Jesus is, in fact, who the Bible says he is. And it took faith for the wise men to follow the predictions of Scripture to lead them to Christ. But the question is, on what are we basing our confidence today? If we have the special revelation that Jesus is the Christ, we're not just looking to the natural world and not looking to natural revelation, but the natural revelation leads us to special revelation that Jesus is the unique son of God. On what are we basing such a confidence? Well, I like what John Lennox said, wherein he said that faith is actually not a leap in the dark. It's actually the exact opposite. It's a commitment based on evidence, and it's irrational to reduce all faith to blind faith and then subject it to ridicule. That provides a very anti-intellectual and convenient way of of avoiding intelligent discussion. But as learned people, especially in our age, to whom much is given, we cannot allow ourselves to do that. So is there a reliable source to actually find our way to the Lord? The answer is yes, it's in the Gospels of Jesus Christ, where when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you actually see that these are biographies of Jesus testifying to his advent, his sinless life on the earth, his miracle ministry, his death on the cross for the propitiation of our sins, and his ultimate resurrection from the dead to give eternal life to you and I as we turn away from our sin and turn in faith towards him. And in his book, uh, actually called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, apologist Gary Habermas actually gives us reasons why we can have great confidence in the testimonies of the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus that actually spoke about his life in which we put our confidence. He said this in his book, we can start with approximately nine traditional authors of the New Testament. If we consider the critical thesis that other authors wrote the pastoral letters and such letters as Ephesians and 2 Thessalonians, which are, again, letters that come after the Gospels, we'd have an even larger number. 
Another 20 early Christian authors and four heretical writings mentioned Jesus within 150 years of his death on the cross. Moreover, nine secular, non-Christian sources mentioned Jesus within the, fir- within the 150, um, 150 years. Josephus, the Jewish historian, Tacitus, the Roman historian, Pliny the Younger, a political or politician rather of Rome, Phlegon, a freed slave who wrote histories, Lucian, the Greek satirist, Celsus, a Roman philosopher, and probably the historians Suetonius and Thallus, as well as the prisoner Mera Bar Serapion. In all, at least 42 authors, nine of them secular, mentioned Jesus within 150 years of his death. In comparison, let's take a look at Julius Caesar, one of Rome's most prominent figures. Caesar is well known for his military conquests. After his Gallic Wars, he made the famous statement, I came, I saw, I conquered. Only five sources, though, report his military conquests. Writings by Caesar himself, Cicero, Livy, the Salona Decree, and Appian. If Julius Caesar really made a profound impact on Roman society, why didn't more writers of antiquity mention his great military accomplishments? No one questions whether Julius did make a, make a tremendous impact on the Roman Empire. It's evident that he did. Yet in those 150 years after his death, more non-Christian authors alone comment on Jesus than on all the sources who mentioned Julius Caesar's great military conquests within 150 years of his death. Let's look at an even better example. A contemporary of Jesus, Tiberius Caesar, was a Roman emperor at the time of Jesus' ministry and execution. Tiberius is mentioned by 10 sources within 150 years of his death. Tacitus, Suetonius, Valius, Paterculus, Plutarch, Pliny the Elder, Strabo, Seneca, Valerius Maximus, Josephus, and Luke. Compare that to Jesus' 42 total sources in the same length of time. That's more than four times the number of total sources who mentioned the Roman emperor during roughly the same period. If we only considered the number of secular non-Christian sources whom Jesus and Tiberius within 150 years of their lives, we arrive at a tie of nine each. So we see that there's overwhelming evidence that the Gospels that we have give more than enough eyewitness testimony of those who not only saw and heard what Jesus said and did, but they were actually those who are willing as martyrs to die for the testimony that they were willing to maintain. And what we see is that when the wise men came to grips with that special revelation of the word of God, pointing to where Jesus would be born, that special revelation actually confirmed the joy that was first stirred in them when they saw that star. And with great confidence, the star reappeared after the wise men consulted God's word and led them full measure with both natural and special revelation working together to the feet of Jesus. 
Now, when we get to the feet of Jesus, we understand that our joy is not just stirred, not just confirmed, but also finally realized at the feet of Jesus when the purpose behind all of our talents, learning, and resources come into full view. That when we see Jesus clearly, we understand what what the purpose of all God's entrusted to us and all we've experienced in our lives actually come to. And people often wonder at the great purpose behind their learning, their opportunities, and the measure of their resources, saying, what am I to do with all that I've been given? Well, God gives us understanding when we finally meet Jesus as he is. And the truth is, is that we see in scripture that there is no way to truly meet Jesus except as king, as he actually is. When Jesus showed up on the scene, he came not as just a good teacher, not as a good philosopher, not just as a moral individual, but Jesus came to be king. And as with the wise men, when we finally meet Jesus as king, it demands at least three responses in our lives. Number one, Jesus comes to be Lord of our time. The wise men made a trip from the east that would have taken them 40 days over 800 miles if they averaged about 20 miles a day by caravan along the main trade route of Babylon. To meet Jesus as king, they had to devote time to actually seeking him out. And in the same way, if we're going to serve Jesus as king, ultimately, we've got to ask the question, is our time under his lordship? Number two, Jesus, when we meet him as king, becomes Lord of our treasure. And the wise men came and laid their wealth at the feet of Jesus that their resources might no longer be their God, but their God would be the provider of those resources. And they understood what Jesus would say later that you cannot serve both God and money and undertook great expense to travel to acknowledge Jesus as their Lord. And the question is, is if you've given your life to Jesus, has your heart been given to Jesus by submitting your treasure to Jesus? And then number three, Jesus becomes Lord of our talent. And the wise men would take their encounter with Jesus when they met him along with their great learning to become witnesses of Christ in their place, in the places in which they used their talents on a daily basis. They wouldn't stay in Bethlehem, but they would ultimately return to the place from which they'd come. And all of us, no matter how often we come together to worship the living God through his son, Jesus Christ, we ultimately have to go back into our everyday lives. And there in our everyday lives, we take the testimony of Jesus using our brains, our talents, our resources, our opportunities, our jobs to make Jesus known. And these three responses are literally right in the middle of the Christmas story because worship always comes back to this. How will God see how you used your time, your treasure, and your talents to worship Jesus as King? Will he see any evidence of that at all? Will these things have been used to, for the kingdom of God, the advancement of the kingdom of God, to reap an eternal reward for yourself? Or will they have been 
wasted and one day even buried with you. The wise men ventured together with like-minded individuals to meet Jesus. And that's the beauty of the church that we as worshipers of God go together to honor him, to love him and to serve him and to make him known. And they ultimately found the joy of worshiping and giving to the one who would live forever and by his sacrifice on the cross and resurrection from the dead to cause us to live forever as well. But there's got to be a come to Jesus moment where we serve him as king and no longer deceive ourselves to think that just because we have learning about him, we're in right relationship with him. And that's why Michael L. Brown actually communicated it this way when he said, again, thousands are deceived into supposing that they have accepted Christ as their personal savior who have not first received him as their Lord. The son of God did not come here to save his people in their sin, but from their sins. To be saved from sins is to be saved from ignoring and despising the authority of God. It is to abandon the course of self-will and self-pleasing. It is to forsake our way. It is to surrender to God's authority, to yield to his dominion, to give ourselves over to be ruled by him. The one who has never taken Christ's yoke upon him, who is not truly and diligently seeking to please him in all the details of life, and yet supposes that he is resting on the finished work of Christ, is actually deluded by the devil. And may we not be those people, but instead, like the wise men in all of our learning, come and offer our all to Jesus at the feet of the cross. Ultimately, what you see with the wise men is that God reroutes them and he reroutes us in life to ultimately save our lives. Regardless of how we've been using our time, our treasure, and our talents up to this point, God wants to reroute us unto his glory. And God sent the wise men a dream to warn them of the danger that Herod, who would try to remain his own king until his death, now posed to them. Just like us trying to remain in control of our own lives, the danger it ultimately poses to us. And the question today is, will you allow God to reroute you just like he rerouted the wise men? We need to take an account of our lives and begin now to reorder our time, our treasure, and our talents, how we use them, and actually begin building them on Christ. Leaving any one of these out, whether it be our time, our treasure, or our talent is sin. And it's what people often try to do. They say, I'm going to give God my time, but I'm keeping my treasure and my talents, what I do with my life, to myself. They're my precious, and I don't want anybody to touch them, not even God. And that's sin. And at the same time, other people, they say, you know what, I'll, I'm in, in a sense going to pay God off. I'll give him my treasure, but my time is my own, and ultimately my career, my trajectory in my life is my own. And that too is sin. It's only together, as the wise men brought all three to Jesus, do we finally see lordship represented in their lives. And that's how we're going to see lordship represented in our lives as well. And the great joy that comes from serving Jesus as Lord. 
After meeting Jesus, the wise men returned home a different way. And so we need to meet Jesus and let our courses forever be altered to turn us away from both a life of self-sufficiency and sin. And in doing so, we will find the joy of Christ's advent and be a testimony of his true life to the world. And many of us have tried to do it our own way for years and have reaped the consequences of it. The consequences of broken relationships, broken families, the consequences of broken psyches and broken emotions. And God says, if you would come to the feet of Jesus with all of the great and special revelation that he gives you about his son through his word today, he will make you a new creation. And for those of you who've called yourselves Christians, but have still been living as your own king, he says, today is the day where you can be freed of deception and come to him finally as he is, as king and as Lord. And so I want to end by praying for you today and saying, will you be wise like these men and come to God and Jesus as he is and allow him to reroute and to change you? Because if you will, the joy of the Lord will be yours and it will be your strength, both now in the pandemic and long after for years to come. So let me start by praying for those who may have never met Jesus before. If you say, you know what? I know that I'm destined to meet God one day But I know that in the life that I've lived up to this point, I've been a sinner and deserve death and hell, but I don't want it. Would you pray this prayer for me? God Almighty, I admit to you today that I'm a sinner. And I know that as opposed to the wise men, I've lived as if you haven't existed. I've lived as if I wasn't ever going to have to face you and give an account for my lives or reap the consequences of the choices that I've made. But I realize today by your word that there is going to be a reckoning. And I know that I'm going to die and face you in judgment. And I know that as I stand right now, I I deserve death and hell. But I don't want it. And I thank you for the good news of this Advent season. That you sent Jesus to live the perfect life that I should have lived. And on the cross died the sacrificial death that I should have died. So that three days later, because of his innocence, you would raise him from the dead so I could have new life in you. God, would you forgive me today and make me a new creation today? God, would you reroute me as I proclaim you my Lord and lay down before you my time, my treasure, and my talents to serve you as you are my King. God, I thank you for your love for me. And I look forward to this new walk in you. In Jesus name. Amen. Now the good news is, is if you prayed that prayer, God said he in this Advent season has made you a new creation. So would you go with me to our website, secondcitychurch.com slash new life. There you can find not only resources, but also the next steps of how to walk out this new life with fellow minded believers 
coming to worship the King and make him known. And for the rest of us, let's pray together as we go back into worship that God would give us the grace to lay down all of our talent, all of our time, and all of our treasure to honoring the one who needs to bring his good news to the world through the efforts that we make in love for him. So God Almighty, I pray that you would help us by your grace to lay down our time, to lay down our treasure, to lay down our talents at your feet. And as we continue through this Advent season with great joy to return to the world with the good news of your salvation, liberate our hearts that you might truly be our God, not just in word, but truly indeed. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. We encourage you to visit our website to find out community groups that you can attend both virtually and in person to go deeper in the word and also have a shared life with other believers here in the city and beyond. Um, but we just wanted you to know that we're going to be praying for you this week. We encourage you to bring another friend with you next week who also needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. We love you. And until then, have a great week in the Lord. God bless.